Welcome again. I think we can get started. My name is Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity here at the Cato Institute. This panel is about the IMF's role in the world economy. Every 10 or so years, a crisis in the world economy uh, seems to force the IMF to catch up to world events and to try to justify uh, itself by creating new missions for itself. After the collapse of the system of fixed exchange rates in the early 70s, uh, those episodes that prompted new roles for the IMF included the oil crisis of the 1970s, the third world debt crisis of the 1980s, the collapse of communism and move to the market, the Mexican and Asian financial crises of the 1990s, and currently the global financial crisis. Regardless of of what you think about the fund's effectiveness in addressing those problems and those uh, crises, what is undeniable is that the IMF has shown itself to be a remarkably resilient organization. It has greeted each episode of crisis as an opportunity uh, to expand its uh, mandate, but also to significantly increase its resources. The increase in the IMF's resources in the current episode, however, is uh, staggering and unprecedented. It includes a tripling of the IMF's lending resources by $750 billion and an increase uh, in the allocation of SDRs worth $250 billion. So you have a total of a trillion dollars worth of new resources at the IMF in the past few months alone all of that approved quickly and with little or no debate. I guess that's a sign of the times. The last time that the fund uh, called for an increase in its capital uh, resources was about 10 years ago. At the time, it was requesting a mere $100 billion, which it eventually got approved, but not uh, without a heated and lengthy debate, at least here in the United States, that, uh, among other things, resulted in the famous Meltzer Commission, which Alan was uh, kind enough to invite me to testify to, and which brought to light some of the failings of the IMF. So the fund uh, today is much richer uh, than it was, but it is still uh, in search of a clear mission. This panel will take a look at the many proposals that are being made uh, for the IMF, and uh, we'll ask whether the IMF is the best vehicle to address some of the problems uh, that have come up. The proposals include relying on the IMF as, a, uh, as, the, as the vehicle to solve uh, global imbalances, to, pre to prevent future financial crises through uh, massive lending, or by providing surveillance or an early warning system to countries around the world, and to use the IMF's unit of account, the SDR, as some sort of a new global reserve currency. So there's a lot of issues, and let me then uh, turn to the panel. We will begin with Dr. Eswar Prasad, who is a professor of trade policy at Cornell University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's also a research associate at NBER and was previously the chief of financial studies uh, the Financial Studies Division at the IMF's Research Department and the head of the IMF's China Division. Please help me welcome Dr. Prasad. Good afternoon. If you'd like to speak from the podium, you can. 
Um, okay. Good afternoon. What a difference a year makes to the fate of the IMF and the state of the world economy. About a year ago, things certainly looked like we were in the midst of doom and gloom, and there was no sign of escape for the world economy at large, which was plunging off the cliff, and the IMF was suddenly coming back to life in the midst of the crisis. Where are we today compared to where we were a year ago? There is, of course, a, a deep debate about what led us to where we ended up last October and where we've been trying to come out since. But I think it's an undeniable fact that even though there were regulatory failures and regulatory problems in the United States, one of the factors that fed the flames of the fire and got us to where we are, what prevented what might have been a small bubble that instead turned into a cataclysm was really this phenomenon of relatively cheap money flowing into the U.S. from abroad. Now, of course, there is this notion that came up in the last days of the Bush administration that it was all someone else's fault. And I think that's um, balderdash. But global imbalances certainly had a very important role to play. Have we learned useful lessons from the crisis? And here, I'm far less optimistic um, as we come out of the crisis. In some ways, it looks like we are trying to get things right in the financial system, although what's been happening in the last few weeks leaves me with a sense of despair. But in terms of global imbalances, I'm left with an even deeper sense of despair because when I look around the world economy, I still see a set of circumstances whereby the rest of the world is still looking to ride the U.S. coattails to recovery. Now, of course, much of the discussion about global macroeconomic imbalances has been framed in the context of the U.S.-China relationship, and that's a very good place to start. China, of course, has been doing remarkably well even though they almost hit the wall towards the end of last year, but have come out of it remarkably strongly. How have they come out of it? Through an enormous surge in bank lending, which has fueled investment. Indeed, the Chinese state-owned banks lent out more than $1 trillion in just the first six months of 2009. That's about 25% of GDP for an economy where the banks don't work especially well. Now, this, of course, has been wonderful for the bottom line in terms of GDP growth, but it creates a real problem in the economy because, essentially, many industries that already had a lot of capacity to begin with, a lot of spare capacity, are now going to be building up even more excess capacity. And GDP growth is riding ahead of um, household income growth, which means that the economy is not going to be able to absorb all of this output. In addition, employment growth, which in the best of years was very, very weak, has been extraordinarily weak right now because it is an investment-led growth boom. So essentially, China is going to continue looking to the rest of the world, and especially the U.S., to soak up a lot of its final demand. As an, and as one looks around the other countries, the emerging markets are, of course, doing very well, but they can essentially hold their own, not pull in a lot of imports. And then you start looking at countries like Japan and Germany. They still remain very dependent on exports. So I think ultimately we could be setting ourselves up for a situation where, again, it is the U.S. consumer, bless his heart, um, who started saving in order to rebuild his balance sheet, but has now started reducing his saving rate. And, of course, the government has stepped into the breach over the last year, but cannot stay in that breach forever, although it seems like it would like to do so. Um, and this is going to create a fairly significant conflict in the world economy. Now, of course, one part of global imbalances was related to export-led growth. Another important part was related to reserve accumulation by emerging markets trying to self-insure 
what has happened to the incentives on that front. In my view, the incentives to build up reserves and self-insurers, if anything, strengthened for the emerging markets. Think about it. Countries that had what used to be thought of as massive amounts of reserves found those reserves disappearing very, very quickly. India had about $305 billion worth of reserves, an enormous amount by uh, Indian historical standards. In a period of about six months, they lost about a fifth of that. Russia lost about a fifth of its $500 billion worth of reserves in a similar period. The lesson that many emerging markets are taking from this is that they should have even more reserves. Of course, going to the IMF is an option, but that option is something that comes with too much of a political cost. In addition, we have seen that the leveraging effect of IMF money simply did not exist during this crisis. The old approach used to be take IMF money, accept an IMF conditionality, and then the world will come to your door because, after all, if the IMF has given you money, you must be doing the right thing. Well, this time the IMF did go and give money to a few countries. Virtually no private capital followed. So essentially, emerging markets are realizing that they are going to have to protect themselves. Now, the IMF is supposed to be doing this, and the IMF, uh, as Ian pointed out, has been given a massive infusion of resources. Does this make the IMF the right institution for providing global insurance? In my view, no matter how well the IMF does its job, there is a fundamental tension at the heart of the IMF's roles. The IMF does two things, or is supposed to do two things well. One is macroeconomic surveillance, and the other is provide insurance. There's, of course, a whole host of other things it's supposed to do, like provide technical assistance and so on. But in this new world order where the emerging markets can shake things up, and as far as the emerging markets are concerned, these are the two critical functions. And inherently, there is tension between these two. In the midst of the crisis, the IMF has, to its credit, been very flexible. They introduced a lot of new loan instruments, like the flexible credit line, where the idea was a country could go uh, pre-qualify. And once it had pre-qualified, it would have access to IMF money without too many new conditions being imposed. Even countries that had not pre-qualified were given relatively easy terms by the IMF. But the flexible credit line and variants thereof are inherently contradictory because if you think about the IMF's role as providing macro surveillance, if Mexico qualifies today, the problem is tomorrow if Mexico runs bad policies and the IMF in its surveillance finds out that Mexico is running bad policies, they have to disqualify Mexico from the flexible credit line. So the IMF cannot and indeed should not credibly commit to keeping open these lines of credit um, no matter what policies a country runs. So inherently, these two um, goals cannot work together. So what is the solution? I have proposed a solution, and I think the simple approach is to think about it as insurance. Why don't we simply set up an insurance mechanism, perhaps through the G20, which works the way insurance is supposed to? You pay a premium depending on how much insurance you want, and if you're a bad driver, you pay bigger premiums for your auto insurance. If you're a bad country, run bad policies, you pay a higher premium. Except in the scheme I've proposed uh, in the Financial Times, essentially I argue that one can, in fact, solve the collective action problem as well. How do you do that? If a country runs a large current account deficit, it creates risk for itself and for the world economy. It should pay a higher premium. If China runs a large current account surplus, it may be protecting itself, but it's creating higher global risks. It should pay a higher premium as well because it's raising the collective risk. And, of course, the question is whether this insurance pool could run out of money. And essentially, my view is that this could be backstopped by having the insurance premiums being held 
in bonds related to the U.S., Japan, and the euro, and what these countries could do in return for the privilege of having the premiums parked in their government bonds is essentially provide lines of credit to the insurance pool. This may seem like a radical idea, but this is exactly what these countries were, in fact, doing exposed in the midst of the crisis. They provided exposed swap lines of credit. So essentially, by pulling this up ex ante, you could set up an insurance mechanism completely separate for the IMF. So essentially, you pay a premium, and if things go bad, if your uh, car runs into uh, a tree, whether it's your fault or the tree's fault, the insurance premium pays out. So essentially, you take the cost up front of bad policies and have the commitment to get money out of this. So the insurance scheme is potentially something that can work well. Now, what about the macroeconomic surveillance? Here, there is the notion that the IMF has not been able to exercise effective surveillance on its key member countries. There is the much-touted framework for balanced and sustained growth. Actually, there's balanced, sustained, and something else, which I forget, but I'm sure it's very good. Um, this framework essentially was signed on to by the G20, and the G20 have agreed that the IMF should carry the ball on this front. In fact, Timothy Geithner had this classic line. He said, we will now ask the IMF to hold our feet to the fire. Sounds good enough, but the problem is that this framework lacks three critical elements. One is goals, the second is quantitative criteria, and the third is an enforcement mechanism. Right now, there is very little agreement even among the major G20 countries about what the right goals are. President Obama has just been in China and tried to raise the currency issue which effectively got squelched by the Chinese, essentially saying that the real problem is loose U.S. monetary policy and protectionism rather than Chinese currency policy. And the issue here is that unless one can think about how to get the G20 on board in thinking about the collective action problem and the costs imposed on the global financial system by their individual policies, we're not going to make progress. But even if China does sign on to the notion that large current account surpluses are a problem, we don't have quantitative criteria for determining that there are serious problems here. So from the point of view of China, an 8% or 9% surplus on the current account may be explainable by some uh, reputable economic, uh, economic model or the other. There are always economic models that can explain most phenomena that you see, uh, for better or worse. So this creates a problem for the IMF now because on the one hand, if it comes up with uniform criteria, it gets blamed for a one-size-fits-all approach. But on the other hand, if it's left to each country to decide how best to apply these policies, then we're left with a situation where each country is going to recognize or argue that it's sui generis. Even if there was agreement on goals and criteria, what we lack is an enforcement mechanism. And that, I think, is going to be the crux of the issue. Right now, we have a commitment from the G20 to this laudable objective of balanced growth. But I think unless we have, a, have an effective commitment mechanism in place, it's going to be very difficult to work. So it's relatively easy to blame the IMF for not being very effectual here. But I think ultimately the IMF is not set up in the right way. Uh, and essentially we're trying to get the IMF to manage these multiple mandates, some of which are in inherent conflict with each other. And on other issues like the mandate for the framework for balance and sustained growth, I think it is good that the IMF is handling the macroeconomic surveillance part of it, but I think the G20 is not willing to give it the enforcement mechanism. And here, really, it's a problem that is outside the IMF. Unless the G20 can get together and create reforms to the IMF, including in the governance structure whereby the emerging markets feel that they really have some sort of ownership beyond very minor voting roles to the IMF, it's not going to change very much. So ultimately, I think rather than thinking about the IMF's effectiveness 
intrinsically, we have to think about it in the much broader context of the global economic uh, uh, setting. Thanks. Thanks very much. Our next speaker is Miranda Safa. She is a senior investment strategy at IJ Partners. Before that, she has been an alternate executive director at the International Monetary Fund, and uh, she has worked as an economist at the IMF as well and as a market analyst at Salman Brothers. She has also been a chief uh, economic advisor in the government of uh, Prime Minister Mitsotakis in Athens and has taught economics at the University of Pennsylvania and at Princeton. Please help me welcome Miranda Shafa. Thank you very much. As a former IMF, I'm probably biased, so I'll give now the positive view of the IMF's role. Um, more than two years on, the impact of the crisis that erupted in August of 07 is still very much with us. Uh, the IMF did not forecast the crisis, but it did forecast accurately the severity of the resulting economic downturn. And um, after that, it provided expert analysis of the policy options, and it thus helped mobilize concerted action by policymakers globally to address the crisis and these extraordinary economic and financial events. So as a result of all that, the IMF has emerged as a powerful institutional force, providing analysis and recommendations uh, to policymakers all over the world that have served as a basis for official action on several fronts. The IMF was the first to call for fiscal stimulus to address the downturn and for capital injections to ailing financial institutions uh, to help ease the credit crunch. It is no coincidence that the first emergency summit of G20 leaders happened here in Washington immediately after the annual meetings of 2008 in the aftermath of the failure of uh, uh, one major institution and the near failure of another. In the aftermath of this emergency G20 summit, the fund was mandated to follow up on the commitments that G20 leaders made with respect to the provision of fiscal stimulus and the implementation of uh, bank support packages. These uh, uh, unprecedented interventions prevented a meltdown of the global financial system and contributed significantly to uh, signs of economic and financial stabilization since the spring of this year. I would highlight four areas in which the IMF took action in response to the crisis. The first was to revise its surveillance priorities. The second was to overhaul its lending framework. The third was a global liquidity provision through an SDR allocation. And the, the fourth was uh, the uh, governance reform. I will quickly summarize the actions taken by the IMF in each of these four fronts. And then I would like to quickly address uh, the role that the global imbalances played in the crisis. I will argue that the fund was barking up the wrong tree 
when it focused its attention on the global imbalances and when it adopted the surveillance decision in the run-up to the crisis in mid-2007. So first on surveillance, the crisis clearly demonstrated the need to improve the existing framework for assessing global stability and to reinforce the early warning capabilities of the IMF. Um, The IMF warned about rising credit risk and about asset mispricings in the run-up to the crisis, but the focus of this uh, advice was not sharp enough to prompt policy action. And also policymakers in the still booming global economy were less receptive to these warnings that were echoed in the GFSR, the Global Financial Stability Report of the IMF, and also on the WIO, the World Economic Outlook. <coughs> After the onset of the crisis, the fund provided valuable policy recommendations for policymakers and regulators alike based on a sharp analysis of the origins of the crisis and its likely consequences. Uh, The Global Financial Stability Report specifically identified policy priorities that are needed to make the global uh, financial system less crisis-prone, such as dealing with distressed assets and reducing procyclicality by avoiding the buildup of systemic risks during the good times and the subsequent painful deleveraging process in the aftermath during the downturn. These priorities were explicitly recognized in the G20 communique at the Pittsburgh summit in September of this year, a couple of months ago. The global reach of the crisis also called for improved monitoring of cross-country spillover risks and their potential macro impact. For example, as you might recall, Eastern Europe was one of the hardest hit regions uh, because they had huge current account deficits and um, externally funded credit booms. And so the IMF was the first to analyze the impact of deleveraging by Western European banks on their Eastern European uh, subsidiaries. And it also was a key player in the so-called Vienna Initiative, whose uh, aim was to prevent a collapse of bank capital flowing into these uh, countries, the Eastern European countries, together with the EBRD and the EIB. And at last month's IMF uh, meetings in Istanbul, the IMFC recognized the need to reassess the role of the fund and called on the fund to review its mandate to cover not just external stability, but also macroprudential, macrofinancial stability, and to report back to this committee at the next annual meetings in 2010. Second, on the lending framework, as uh, uh, Mr. Prasad just said, uh, the IMF has developed a new instrument, a new lending instrument, precautionary lending, the flexible credit line. Uh, You might also recall that initially the emerging markets were not affected by the crisis that originated in the advanced countries 
and there was a lot of talk about um, decoupling, that the, that the emerging markets had finally decoupled from the advanced countries. And there was a, a special chapter in the World Economic Outlook of the IMF predicting that this would not be the case. And the, that, was, that prediction was unfortunately correct because um, as deleveraging proceeded, obviously these countries were very hard hit. Um, it is true that this new facility has ex-ante conditionality, meaning that if you are well-behaved, you don't need to meet conditions as under the normal standby arrangements. But there is a midterm review. Uh, it's a 12-month facility with a midterm review after six months. So countries could lose access if they start behaving badly. Um, so moving on to the global um, liquidity provision, in response to the crisis, advanced country central banks injected massive liquidity, but the non-reserve currency countries, the emerging markets in other words, they faced foreign exchange shortages that threatened to further depress trade and capital flows globally. And so the general allocation of $250 billion worth of SDRs to IMF members in August of this year alleviated this bottleneck by providing liquidity on a global scale. And remember that SDRs are helicopter money. You know, they're not the liability of any country. So they share that characteristic with gold. Gold was a great reserve asset because it's nobody's liability and you can't print it. So the SDR shares some of that. Um, on governance, I'll just mention very quickly the fact that the IMF is now in the process of revising the voting structure with uh, uh, the intention to transfer 5% five, five of the voting power to, um, to the emerging markets from the developed countries. And finally, before closing, I just wanted to... Um, uh, give my, my view of the global imbalances and what role they played. Uh, my own view is that they played a marginal role, if any. Uh, unsustainable cross-border capital flows originated both from surplus and from deficit countries, and you can see that in Eastern Europe, where the banks of deficit countries like France, Greece, uh, and others um, extended a huge amount of credit to the Eastern European countries, just as much as the surplus countries like Germany. Um, in the run-up to the crisis, the fund stressed the need to rebalance global growth across the surplus and the deficit countries to help preser preserve global growth and avoid an abrupt unwinding of the imbalances. The main concern there was that uh, there might be a sudden loss of confidence triggered by the accumulation of massive U.S. external liabilities that could give rise to a big sell-off of dollar assets and cause interest rates to rise and the dollar to plummet. So the IMF launched these multilateral consultations in 2006, which uh, resulted in a call for joint action to reduce the imbalances, mainly by reducing the U.S. fiscal deficit and by having China uh, revalue the renminbi. But these gloomy predictions about disorderly dollar depreciation and sharper interest rates never materialized, 
On the contrary, as the financial crisis deepened after Lehman's failure, uh, safe haven flows supported the dollar. And as it turned out, the much-feared hard landing for the U.S. and the global economy was driven by domestic rather than external factors, namely the housing correction and the credit crunch, and U.S. rates declined rather than rose during the crisis. So in contrast to the traditional view of the imbalances, the crisis was a homegrown crisis that originated in the U.S. housing correction and was vastly magnified by the malfunctioning of the securitization chain in the U.S. and by leverage and illiquidity in the global economy. So I would be prepared to predict that when it comes out for review uh, next year, the IMF's uh, surveillance decision will be revised. Thank you. Thank you. Our next speaker is Swami Nathan Iyer. Swami Iyer is a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He is also uh, the Sunday columnist for the Times of India, and he writes a regular column for the Economic Times in India. He has been uh, the editor of India's two biggest financial dailies, the Economic Times and uh, Financial Express. He has been called by the Brookings Institution the uh, leading economic journalist of India, mostly at the Cato Institute. Uh, he deals with uh, Asian issues. Uh, he has been, I think, sucked into this whole debate about uh, the IMF because of a paper he recently wrote on the role of SDRs as a reserve currency. But today, I believe he's going to talk uh, precisely about uh, the surveillance uh, proposal for the IMF. Please help me welcome Swami Iyer. Well, as Ishwar said, uh, two new roles being proposed for the, for the IMF. One is insurance, uh, so that you check excessive reserve creation. And the second is preventing future crises through global surveillance and early warning systems. And like him, I think I'm utterly skeptical about the success of the IMF in either of those roles. It's going to be very, very difficult. Uh, first, uh, Checking reserve anxiety, providing insurance. Now, it is true that now it's, it's very clear that some countries like China may have built up large foreign exchange reserves basically as an export promotion device. But many other countries built up foreign exchange reserves as insurance against another crisis. The Asian financial crisis was an utterly traumatic event for Asia. Till then, you thought you can run large deficits and there will always be the IMF or capital flows to bail you out. When that didn't happen, Asian countries said, never again, we are going to build up very, very large reserves. This was a cause of global imbalances. And the odd thing is that while global imbalances may have caused the crisis, at the end of this crisis, anybody who built up large foreign exchange reserves says, I have been vindicated. This is the right policy to go. So as Ishwar said, there's going to be the tendency to do it even more. Now, Dominic Strauss-Kahn in the IMF is hoping that he can wean them off. He's saying, look, you guys didn't trust me in the past, but I've changed. I'm a reformed person. So henceforth, uh, don't build up your own reserves. Trust me. Uh, Strauss-Kahn says that he would like to build up the IMF's lending power to $2 trillion. And within that, he'll have this flexible line of credit. He'll have relatively soft conditionality. So he's saying, people, you don't have to build up your own reserves. Depend on me. Your credit line with the IMF is going to be almost as good as your own foreign exchange reserves. 
I find it very difficult to believe that this will fly. The chances of this happening are close to zero. Uh, developing countries simply do not trust the IMF. Well, for that matter, the United States does not trust the IMF. Uh, so there is a problem. Uh, after the Asian financial crisis, the Asian countries said, you know, in order to wean ourselves away from the IMF, let's set up the Chiang Mai Initiative. Now, the Chiang Mai Initiative was a swap arrangement. Now they are trying to convert it into a reserve pooling arrangement, $120 billion. Now, people in the IMF will say, aha, during the, this crisis, did they use the Chiang Mai Initiative? They didn't. And I think that's also correct. While the Asian countries are looking for an alternative to the IMF, they haven't really found it yet. They don't trust each other uh, sufficiently uh, within the Chiang Mai Initiative. And, but it's very clear as the direction. The direction they are going in is how do we find something more than the IMF. When you saw that the U.S. offered uh, swap lines to various countries during the crisis, China then offered the same. Everybody is looking for alternatives to the IMF. In other words, they say IMF not good enough. In these circumstances, for Strauss can't hope that countries will stop building up their own reserves and depend on the IMF. I think that's extremely unlikely. There is this proposal to make the IMF more credible by increasing the vote shares of some developing countries. A five percentage point shift has been agreed to by the G20. I don't think it will change the fact of Western domination. I don't think it will change suspicions of the IMF. So if indeed we wish to do something, as Ishwar said, we need some mechanisms which have to go outside just this IMF line. Uh, he has this idea about an insurance pool of some kind. Well, you know, clearly you need an insurance pool of some kind. The only problem is that in a crisis of the kind that we get, it's very often a crisis that infects everybody across the pool. An insurance pool works the best when the guy who hits a crisis, it's a kind of random hitting, and most of the guys remain healthy. But if you have a situation where when a crisis strikes, a whole lot of people become unhealthy, that is the kind of thing that bankrupts the insurer. So, I mean, there is a serious problem, as Ishwar said. There is also, I think, we don't yet have a good answer as to how to provide that insurance. Second issue is surveillance to prevent future crises. Uh, the G20 has decided that, okay, we must have this surveillance and peer review to check future crises, uh, have an early warning system, and the IMF has been given a main job for this. Now, this may look like a very important job that's been given to the IMF. I would say poor IMF. It's been given a completely thankless job that cannot be done well, uh, and I think inevitably it's going to fail, and inevitably people are going to criticize it, uh, maybe partly correctly, but partly because it's a job too far. Two problems here. First, the IMF's own track record in forecasting is poor. I mean, on that I would have to disagree with the previous speaker. But it's not the IMF alone. Everybody else gets it wrong. Predicting crises is a mug's game. Uh, various economists in and outside the IMF could see all kinds of things that were wrong in the global economy. Yeah, there's an asset bubble, there's global imbalances, there are large capital flows. I mean, a number of things could be seen. But the question was, could you put it all together to see what it would turn out to be? All right, let's see what the IMF itself did. On September 2nd, 2008, just before Lehman Brothers collapsed, the new IMF chief economist, Olivier Blanchard, gave an interview to the IMF survey online. The large headline of the item was, Blanchard sees global economy weathering financial storm. In other words, you know, at the point when the world was about to fall off a cliff, Blanchard saw 
fair weather coming. I mean, just quote, I, I don't, you can see the full quotations in my full paper, but I mean, just to give some odd quotations here and there, Blanchard says, if the price of oil stabilizes, I believe we can weather the financial crisis at limited cost. And if the price of oil falls below $100, then inflation pressure would subside rapidly and I would be even more optimistic. I mean, a complete and clear misunderstanding of the kind of calamity that was about to come. But, as I said, he was not alone. Many others were saying the same thing. But within two weeks of Blanchard's optimism, we saw the collapse of the world's two biggest mortgage insurance companies, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the world's biggest insurance company, uh, AIG, the, followed by the world's biggest company, uh, General Motors eventually. Yeah, you know, there was utter and totally, total mayhem. Now, Arvind Subramanian uh, of the Peterson Institute has this to say briefly about the IMF's role before the crisis. He says the IMF's cock-up was twofold. First, it was weak or ineffective in addressing global imbalances that contributed to the crisis. It was ineffective in making countries with large current account surpluses like China to adjust. It was equally ineffective in countries with large deficits like the United States. Second, and arguably the bigger failure, was to preside over large capital flows to Eastern Europe, despite the lessons it should have learned from the experience of the Asian financial crisis in the late 1990s. I mean, large capital flows sank Asia then, and identical kind of thing sank Eastern Europe here. And he says these flows to Eastern Europe were in some cases so large, it did not require hindsight to see the problems they would lead to. And so Subramanian gives the IMF a poor C grade for its surveillance. Uh, of course, same Subramanian also gives it an A grade for uh, what it did in, in trying to get out of the hole. But there's a very serious problem in surveillance and in prediction. Now, the biggest fiasco of all was in Iceland. This was a country where a small little country and the banks borrowed six to eight times as much as the entire GDP of the country and to lend into an asset bubble. And you know, this was financial insanity. And I said to myself, you know, IMF has Article 4 consultations with every country. Let me go into the Article 4 consultations of IMF and Iceland and see, did they flag the problem? Well, take a look first at the 2007 report, which was delivered when the subprime crisis had already begun in the U.S., and all big borrowers should have been on a red flag list. Yet, basically, the IMF gave Iceland's bank a good chit. Now, you know, I, I, you, you can read my paper for the entire quotations from it. Here, let me just selectively give a few quotes to show how badly the IMF misjudged the situation. Quote number one, it says, The banking sector appears well-placed to withstand significant credit and market shocks. Quote number two, Stress tests suggest that banks have adequate capital to withstand large shocks. Quote number three, Stress tests track the evolution of capital adequacy quarterly. Therefore, this provides ample lead time to restore capital buffers if necessary. Lots of time to solve the problem if it arises. Quote number four, the increase in foreign currency lending to unhedged sectors poses a growing concerns. The magnitude of these exposures remains small. This has to be wrong. Quote number five, the banks have done a good job of explaining their business model and emphasizing that the small size of the domestic economy can distort the picture suggested by standard ratios to GDP. 
So if somebody says that, you know, the banks are lending five times GDP, I mean, please ignore that because Iceland has a small GDP. I mean, I don't see the logic of that. But very clearly, Iceland managed to fool not only the markets but the IMF as well. Uh, and finally, if you look at the bottom line of that report, it says, Iceland's medium-term prospects remain enviable. Open and flexible markets, sound institutions, and skillful management have enabled Iceland to benefit from opportunities afforded by globalization. Famous last words. Okay. One year later, Iceland was clearly sliding into disaster. So the IMF staff report of 2008 on the Article 4 consultations, this clearly shows awareness of a growing crisis. It points to the possibility of a serious worsening, yet it's unable to imagine the actual collapse that's taking place. I mean, just one quotation. It says, given the difficult market situation, challenges in securing adequate liquidity at an acceptable price could reduce bank profitability. Excuse me, the guys were just about to completely collapse and you are worried about redu reducing profitability. This particular report was there, I think, in late August 2008. A few days later, Iceland's top three banks went comprehensively bust and had to be taken over. Okay. I'm doing some selective quotation. I mean, some guys in the IMF got very angry with me. And they say, you know, when you cherry pick these quotes, you don't give a good picture. Okay, I agree. But I would want to drive home the point that one of the problems here has been that IMF's own record is not particularly good. And I would say, yes, it's not particularly good, but I don't blame the IMF alone. Basically, it's very, very difficult to make, predict a crisis like this. And other economists elsewhere did not do so. Uh, the problem really is explained by behavioral economics by people like Daniel Kahneman, who says that, you know, uh, standard economic models assume human rationality. In fact, you get panic, you get euphoria, you get hurt behavior, you get groupthink. Uh, and people tend to underestimate risk and overestimate success. And Kahneman refers to this human tendency as delusional optimism. And the real problem is while delusional optimism is one of the most important things determining outcomes, we have no idea how you integrate it into a forecasting model, whether it's done by the IMF or by the World Bank or by the Economic Times. I mean, Alan Greenspan himself says, you know, unpredictable changes in human behavior are one reason why financial crises can't be spotted by risk management or forecasting models. These models do not fully capture the innate human responses that result in swings between euphoria and fear that repeat themselves generation after generation with little evidence of a learning curve. So there is a the problem. Of course, it's even worse than that. It's not just the forecasting is difficult. When somebody does a forecast, nobody wants to hear the bad news. Nobody wants to act on that bad news. So you have a situation where policymakers, uh, I mean, I've seen one particular thing says, often public officials have two unfortunate incentives, either to exaggerate worst-case scenarios or ignore them altogether because the electoral prospects depend on one or the other. And this way, the decision-makers themselves exacerbate the swing from euphoria to despair and back. In sum, this new proposed role of the IMF, to me, looks very hazardous, if not doomed from the start. The IMF shareholders are governments, and the IMF has to pull its punches with major shareholders. Um, large creditor countries tend to ignore the IMF lectures, and only borrowers listen out of compulsion. Uh, this adds to the earlier problem that prediction is very difficult. So while the IMF will certainly produce large surveillance reports, I'm sure the IMF will issue early warnings. 
At the end of it all, the hope that this will prevent future crises is one more example of what Kahneman calls delusional optimism. Thank you. Thanks very much. Our next speaker is Judy Shelton. She is a well-known economist specializing in global finance and monetary issues. You have all probably read her frequent articles in the Wall Street Journal and in other major uh, newspapers uh, in the United States and internationally. She has formerly been a, a senior research fellow at the Hoover Institution. She is the author of uh, several books, including Money Meltdown. Please help me welcome Judy Shelton. Thank you, Ian. Restoring global financial stability is the topic for today's conference. And the question for this panel is what role for the IMF? The short answer, the IMF is like the medical technician who administers emergency treatment and rides back in the ambulance with the patient, providing assistance and monitoring vital signs en route to the hospital. As a case in point, I would cite Latvia or Hungary or Ukraine, and, and that's, that's a useful role. A less useful secondary role is advisor to the group of 20. The IMF is effectively serving as the G20 staff these days, and the problem from the point of view of the IMF's credibility is that the advice is routinely ignored, and that makes the IMF the institutional scapegoat for unpopular proposals. And overall, that's kind of demeaning, especially if you end up looking like you're kowtowing to the U.S. and Europe, or now China. What the IMF is not is manager of a stable monetary system for the world. And my comments today are directed toward that fact. There, there is no system. There was one, the Bretton Woods system of fixed exchange rates, which was the reason the International Monetary Fund came into existence. But the IMF today has sworn off any monetary role for gold. And gold, of course, was the anchor, along with the convertible dollar, for that former system, which is why the IMF today is the world's third largest holder of gold behind the U.S. and Germany, even after selling those 200 tons to India and holding on to another 200 to sell. The point being, the International Monetary Fund, an emphasis on its original purpose of stabilizing money across borders through fixed exchange rates, now has a rather different attitude about having all its members agree to abide by the same system. Today, the International Monetary Fund says, with regard to exchange rates, and you can read this on their website, the IMF says, since the collapse of the Bretton Woods system, IMF members have been free to choose any form of exchange arrangement they wish, allowing the currency to float freely pegging it to another currency or basket of currencies, adopting the currency of another country, participating in a currency block, or forming part of a monetary union. There is one exception, however. The one exchange arrangement an IMF member is not permitted to pursue 
is pegging its currency to gold. You see, this is, this is the antithesis of the Bretton Woods Agreement, which was the gold-anchored dollar fixed exchange rate system, and which actually was an international monetary system, the system that Harry Dexter White had in mind when he wrote up the original memorandum justifying the invention of an international monetary fund. My criticism of today's IMF is that it has moved so far away from its original mission, even now encouraging this free-for-all approach to monetary relations, this do-your-own-thing official position on exchange rate regimes, that the IMF has no credibility with regard to international monetary stability. It caved when the Bretton Woods system was dismantled. It cowered as it searched for a new mission, looking to please the U.S. and other powerful nations. And today, in my opinion, it is all too willing to cater to whatever the current power configuration of geopolitics seems to require. And at the moment, that would be the G20, which serves U.S. interests as well at this point. And I detect in Mr. Strauss-Kahn's remarks, uh, Dominique Strauss-Kahn, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, echoes of the same message being put forward to China by Mr. Obama, the U.S. president. In a speech on Monday in Beijing, Mr. Strauss-Kahn said that China is leading the world out of recession, and then he went on to say that all nations must do their part to rebalance the global economy. He notes that, quote, in economies that have run large current account surpluses, domestic demand needs to be stronger. In China, this means an emphasis on private consumption, unquote. I categorize this as advice that will be ignored, except to the extent it coincides with what China's leaders have already decided they're planning to do. Now, as Mr. Strauss-Kahn also said, he also said that, quote, in economies that have run large current account deficits, national saving will need to increase. In many of these economies, including the United States, Fiscal consolidation must take priority, and in those that have experienced asset price busts, financial sector repair will be essential for a lasting recovery, unquote. Well, tell us something we don't already know, but the fact is national saving is not really what the Obama administration is encouraging with huge fiscal stimulus money out there. The whole Keynesian idea is to get the ball rolling and put money in people's hands and get them to spend, not save. And the federal budget put out by the White House for the next 10 years through 2019 not only never runs a surplus, which would represent saving, it never seeks to balance government revenues with government expenditures. It just keeps adding federal debt. So that's why I think this advisory role for the IMF, which takes into account China's participation as a member of the G20, is really just an embarrassment rather than a serious function, which 
brings me back to what the IMF was meant to do and why. And this has great relevance in today's world of global financial turmoil and increasing protectionism. To that end, I want to offer a modest proposal to let the IMF do what it does best, which is to perform triage for struggling emerging economies. But I think it may be time to officially remove from the IMF its gold holdings, which by the IMF's own stated position should have no bearing on the value of currencies, no member country is allowed to peg its currency to gold, and from an auditing point of view, I see no reason for the IMF to carry gold on its balance sheet as an asset when, by the IMF's admission, use of that gold is strictly limited by the Articles of Agreement, and it should not be suggested explicitly or implicitly that IMF gold holdings can be considered collateral for new debt instruments the IMF may choose to offer. The Articles of Agreement include a section, Section K, for liquidating IMF assets in the event its members should so decide, dispersing assets back to the members, which means returning the currencies after paying off liabilities, and giving back the gold to members in proportion to their quotas on August 31, 1975, and on the basis of one SDR being equal to 0.888671 grams of fine gold on the date of liquidation, which harkens back to the old rate of $35 per ounce of gold because the value of the SDR was initially defined as equivalent to 0.888671 grams of fine gold, which meant that one SDR was equivalent to one U.S. dollar. Well, what is an SDR worth today? Uh, let's see, what time is it? The, the U.S. dollar value of the SDR is calculated as the sum of specific amounts of four currencies. It's 44% of a dollar, 34% of a euro, 11% Japanese yen, and 11% pound sterling, on the basis of exchange rates quoted at noon each day in the London market. Oh, and it can be revised and given different weights every five years, with the next review coming up next year in 2010. Sorry, but that's not what I call a good form of money. It does not satisfy the three basic purposes of money. It's not a straightforward unit of account. It's an amalgam with a constantly changing value. It's hardly a store of value based on four fiat currencies. And as a medium of exchange, try buying your next Starbucks, whether it's in New York or Brussels or Beijing, with an SDR. No, I go back to what Harry Dexter White was trying to accomplish when he reported to U.S. Treasury Secretary Henry Morgenthau in April of 1942. And remember, Pearl Harbor had taken place just four months earlier. He said a post-war international economic outlook that would be worth fighting for from the point of view of our European allies would have to start with stable money, stable money based on fixed exchange rates so that nations could trade with each other without the protectionism inherent in sliding exchange rates. Harry Dexter White wrote, people must be encouraged to feel themselves on solid international ground. 
They must be given to understand that a victory will not usher in another two decades of economic uneasiness, bickering, ferment, and disruption. They must be assured that something will be done in the sphere of international economic relations that is new, that is powerful enough and comprehensive enough to give expectation of successfully filling a world need. Prosperity, like peace, is indivisible. To this day, I strongly believe that anyone who talks up the benefits of a weak currency because it allows a nation to be more competitive in international markets just doesn't appreciate the moral underpinnings of capitalism and free markets and free trade. Because cheapening your currency, that's not competing, that's cheating. And let me close with a final quote from that same man who, along with John Maynard Keynes, designed the Bretton Woods International Monetary System. Here is what Harry Dexter White had to say about stable exchange rates. The advantages of obtaining stable exchange rates are patent. The maintenance of stable exchange rates means the elimination of exchange risk in international economic and financial transactions. The cost of conducting foreign trade is thereby reduced, and capital flows much more easily to the country where it yields the greatest return, because both short-term and long-term investments are greatly hampered by the probability of loss from exchange depreciation. As the expectation of continued stability in foreign exchange rates is strengthened, there's also more chance of avoiding the disrupting effects of flights of capital and of inflation. You can't say it any better than that, so I won't try. Thank you very much. Thank you. We have time for questions. Raise your hand and wait for the microphone. We'll take a first question right there, please. Go ahead. Uh, my question is... Uh, what did we as uh, taxpayers and so on uh, really get for the extra trillion dollars that we handed over to the IMF, uh, some of which has been dispersed, like through the SDR allocation, and most of which has not been dispersed? Other than, of course, a new lease on life for an institution that had lost its mission. Um, let me submit the, the following. What are the lessons of uh, the countries that got into trouble and the ones that didn't? Uh, the ones that had flexible exchange regimes, for the most part, did not get into trouble. The countries that either built up foreign currency assets, let's say the Asian model, or reduced their foreign currency liabilities, I would call that the Latin American model, they didn't get into trouble. Uh, so basically what we have is an extra trillion dollars to help out the basket cases, the Pakistans, the Ukraines, the, the, the Baltics, and so on, the ones that had lots of foreign currency liabilities, which the fund should never have overlooked, the ones that had uh, fixed exchange regimes that uh, the fund should have discouraged, and so on. So I think we ended up uh, with an extra trillion dollars uh, rewarding or helping out uh, the basket cases and not making much of a difference for the rest. Okay. I guess uh, I, if anybody wants to answer the question part of that question, feel free. Well, Swami. The issue was one of a shock. What really happened after Lehman Brothers was that all markets froze. Uh, this was not necessarily what you might call the classical uh, uh, rational reaction. 
but nobody wa nobody wanted to lend suddenly to all kinds of people so if you ask me what was the need for money to be suddenly pumped into the system it was to wean people off the shock it wasn't necessarily to help a b or c it was to somehow uh, defreeze a frozen system i would say in that it was actually successful yes uh, as as to whom the money got you you are right that money went to certain number of basket cases a lot of the imf money has not been utilized but there was a completely frozen system until you froze it there was prospects of greater and greater disaster i would say that it was a successful rescue of the global system that took place yeah just very quickly um <laughs> The countries that uh, were the foremost in getting into trouble were those that had floating exchange rates. I can mention Iceland, uh, Romania, Hungary. I would also uh, re recall that Bulgaria did not get into trouble because it had the kind of fixed exchange rate system that permits the automatic adjustment process to work. Uh, that's the modern-day gold standard. It's the currency board, uh, and they stuck with it through thick and thin, and they avoided the crisis altogether. As to what um, we got out of uh, uh, the resources lent to the IMF, um, the debt rollovers of the emerging markets in 2009 amounted to almost $2 trillion, and there is no way on earth all this money could be rolled over at a time when both banks and institutional investors were deleveraging and reducing the risk in their portfolios. So the fund had loanable funds of $250 billion when the crisis started, and just the Mexico FCL absorbed nearly $50 billion of that. So without additional resources, the fund could not have played the role of a stabilizing force. Thank you. Okay, well, whatever you think of whether the, the It still has to be was... credible that if it's needed, the money will be there. So we have the situation where we have uh, 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 an institution that has a massive amount of money now uh, for use in a possible future crisis. Some of us are very skeptical that uh, that money is just going to sit around uh, well used uh, in the meantime. Yes, we'll take a question right here up in front, please. Hutchinson, I write a column called The Bear's Lair, which takes an appropriately pessimistic look at the world. <laughs> I'm not sure that we at the Cato Institute should be taking our economic instruction from Harry Dexter White, who was, after all, an active Soviet spy during his entire attempts to create the IMF. I don't think... I mean... I can't see what point the IMF has, quite frankly. We see moral hazard in central banks bailing out companies and banks. I don't see why there isn't all equal moral hazard, if not more so, in the IMF's existence in bailing out countries. So can somebody perhaps justify the place's existence at all? I think the sentiment of fixed exchange rates in order to have a level playing field so that people could actually compete in what we like to think of as a global marketplace 
without having the insidious tariff of the monies turning against them, something over which they have no control, um, this would be much closer to a free enterprise, entrepreneurial-driven system. And um, you can um, disparage the source, and I'm aware of his history, but I nevertheless agree with the intellectual idea that the only monetary system consistent with free markets and the need to convey accurate price signals that are reliable across borders and through time is to have everyone be on the same monetary unit of account system and ideally have that anchored so that that retains constant purchasing power to fulfill that function of money as well. And that's why I think a gold-anchored global system would be the best approach to currency relations. Good. So there is a question here about um, the principle and then the implementation, the principle about whether an institution like the IMF makes sense, and second, whether it is it has the right circumstances to do its job well. In principle, I think having an institution like the IMF that provides a backstop when countries are running into trouble and could infect the broader system, much like the Federal Reserve works in the U.S., I think is a potentially good idea. But with that good idea, of course, comes a huge problem in the background, the moral hazard problem. And in principle, that is why the macroeconomic surveillance function is tied in to the uh, lending capability of the IMF. But this is where the tension comes in, because um, exactly as with the Federal Reserve System, once you try to do both of these together, you are creating a conflict. And whether that conflict can be resolved within the IMF is not clear. Now, in terms of implementation, the big question is whether you can do both of these together, or if you pull them apart, can you do at least one function well? And the IMF really has very few levers, except those which its major shareholders are willing to give it. And they have been indicating that they are willing to give it the levers for it to work well in terms of the macro surveillance. And one would like to take them at their word, but it is true that no major shareholder of the IMF, the large countries, wants to take the IMF's word seriously. Now, is this the IMF's fault? The IMF has been, in fact, telling countries what they have to be doing. It is not like the IMF has not told the U.S. that the deficit is a problem, that Social Security is a problem, or to China. Um, uh, in sharp contrast to one of the earlier speakers, the fixed exchange rate system, I think, is creating enormous domestic macroeconomic problems for them. But beyond that, to get parties to the table and get them to collectively work on these, uh, on these problems together is a problem. But you do need the IMF to point out the global aspects of countries' macroeconomic policies. And that, I think, is a critical function the IMF serves, because ultimately each of these policies adopted by countries does have a very large externality, and you don't need to have somebody pointing out this externality, not just in terms of the cost to the country itself. But again, in terms of action, the levers are admittedly very limited. So whether getting rid of the IMF is going to make the world better off, I would doubt, because you need a party to do this, and my solution would be, in fact, to think about how to give the IMF levers to do this. But that invariably infringes on national sovereignty, so I'm not sure what the right answer is. But I don't think the answer is to eliminate the IMF. I think it can serve a very useful role, and it has played a potent, uh, reasonably useful role. Milton Friedman once famously said, uh, I, what would you say if I said I wanted to have a cat, provided that it barks? Sometimes uh, there's a tendency in public policy to 
assigned. But Swami no, wanted to say I, something. I, I, I've got a nice, lovely anecdote on the moral hazard issue. I mean, a large number of countries don't borrow from the IMF, so moral hazard isn't there. But there are some third world countries which have just repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly borrowed. And I remember this appeared in The Economist sometime, I think, in the late 1980s, uh, talking to the Zambian finance minister saying, you know, you had seven IMF agreements and you, the, every one of them have broken down. Uh, don't you feel that you're losing uh, credibility? And the guy says, worried? No, I can't say I'm worried. They always come back. We'll take a question right here. Wait for the microphone, please. Hi, um, Krista Tuomi. I, I just want to take a little bit of issue with you saying that countries have no control with the flexible exchange rate, as though they have incredible control with the fixed exchange rate at the same time. I think it's been, in my well, limited experience that countries that pursue stable domestic policies do have control over the long term of how the exchange rate, a flexible exchange rate behaves. The market rewards those who have decent policies. Are you suggesting that speculation is a, has a much larger role to play? I was wondering if you could clarify that comment about flexible exchange rates and having people having no control over them. Thank you. Um, I think, yes, as you ended your question, speculation, I think, overwhelms what would normally be the theoretical justification for floating rates. I mean, what is it, $4 trillion daily turnover, that's what we're up to. And if you, can, if you look at that measured against what would be required to actually finance um, trade and uh, productive investment, it would just be a tiny fraction of that. I, I think... Much of the, much of our, our problems today are because there's a disconnect between real economic activity, and by that I mean productive investment that leads to projects that actually produce goods or services that people want, compared to a monetary system that is highly dominated by speculators, where you're chasing paper profits because... It, it's an incentives issue. You can make much more on derivatives, um, chasing paper profits and trading currencies of the $683 trillion in derivatives that we built up to a year ago, um, which is 10 times global GDP in terms of their nominal value. Uh, Two-thirds of them had to do with gaming interest rate differentials or currencies. So you had people playing off the European Central Bank against the Fed. Now, what, you wouldn't have that if, if you didn't have these differential interest rate policies, which is why everyone hangs on every nuance of what a central bank chairman has to say, because you can make money on that. And if you didn't have the currencies all being different, you wouldn't make money on that. So my feeling is that's not productive. We could fix that. We could have a rational global monetary system. We had it before with a global gold standard. We had it. Let's just take the, the gaming and the politics out of money. Let's just let it work for producers and consumers and convey accurate price signals and let savers make a decision whether to invest or consume and to have some sense that, that you're able to make a reasonable decision based on reliable money. We'll take a question there. We have time for at least one, maybe two questions.
My name is Bert van Selm. I am actually with the International Monetary Fund and I would like to thank all the panelists here today and also all the people from the room who've made comments for their contributions because this type of seminar for us is incredibly uh, valuable. So thank you very much. Of course, there is a lot of areas where we can uh, improve our performance. Uh, surveillance is definitely one of them, the analysis of e economic trends, vulnerabilities and, uh, and risks. Um, so uh, clearly we can improve on this. I would like to take a little bit issue though with the characterization of the fund's work in, uh, in Iceland by Mr. IR. I do think the quotations were a little bit selective. He quoted from Article 4 reports, which usually don't focus that much on the financial sector. We have a separate tool called the Financial Sector Assessment Program that looks specifically at uh, trends in the financial sector. And in the case of Iceland, one of these was performed right before the crisis in June of 2008. And you can find the report on our website and it says very clearly that there are major vulnerabilities. Uh, it's becoming increasingly difficult for Icelandic banks to, uh, to get credit. So that this one was completely off our radar screen is, uh, is something I think we could not agree to. At the same time, perhaps it's true that we could have flagged it earlier. Perhaps this assessment should have done earlier. But that's also a resource question because we do these only once every four or five years uh, or so. And also, very importantly, until recently, we did not do them in all countries because this is a voluntary uh, exercise. And until very recently, uh, only very few G20 countries agreed to do this. Uh, so, for example, in the United States and China... Can I just uh, remind you, we're running out of time, so I'm could you make the question quick, okay. please? So the United States and China are only now uh, agreeing to have us look at their financial sector in any detail, whereas before that they didn't. So this is, for us, is major, uh, major progress, I think. I'm sorry if this is more of a comment uh, rather than a question, but I did feel that, I mean, given the, okay. the topic of this, Thank it you. was appropriate for me to say so. Thank, Thank you. you. Did you want to say anything? No. Okay. So the question remains why two reports from the IMF on Iceland say two, two different things. We'll take one last very quick question right there and a quick answer. Ms. Shelton, you say that a country keeping its currency artificially low is cheating. Aren't the people being cheated the most, the citizens of that country, by denying them the benefit of a strong currency, making imports cheaper, enabling them to, uh, providing for an increase in their standard of living. And until, when that reality is more widely recognized, we will have more naturally determined exchange rates with a more optimal allocation of productive resources and higher standards of living all over the world. Would you agree with that? Um, I, I would agree that it is shortchanging the citizens. It's cutting their global purchasing power, making imports more expensive, as you say. But I would like to have, for instance, a dollar without any adjectives, uh, not a strong dollar, not a weak dollar, just, just a dollar that, is, um, that, that refers to an amount of purchasing power. And if the whole world had a similar monetary unit of account, that, that would be great. It's just it's, it's the jockeying and the way that impacts uh, flows and, and I think distorts the natural demand and supply mechanism that free markets require. That's, that's what I would like to eliminate. Well, I'm afraid we've run out of time. From what I can tell, there's still no consensus on what the IMF should be doing, and I expect that that will be the case for quite a long time, as it has been the case for the better part of this decade. But I want to thank uh, our speakers 
and we have a 15-minute break. Thank you.